welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is from our Ask the Expert category and is mostly targeted towards allergists and physicians, but I hope that this will be an enlightening conversation for anybody who wishes to listen. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Zuhair Ballas, who is the Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Dr. Ballas is a Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. Dr. Ballas has a long and accomplished career as a researcher, clinician, and educator. His research focus has centered on studying the role of natural killer cells in health and disease. Today, Dr. Ballas is going to discuss the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, which has the highest impact factor among all allergy journals. Dr. Ballas, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and welcome to the show. Thank you, David. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about the journal, and I really appreciate the invitation. Oh, excellent. Well, I think, you know, to begin with, it's important for our listeners to really understand how impactful the the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology is for our specialty. Can you comment on the current impact factor and and help us understand what that actually means? Okay, so the impact factor actually is is one measure of uh, how much a particular journal contributes to the uh, literature at large and to the specialty in particular. So for uh, uh, Jackie, and I'm going to refer to the journal as Jackie because, you know, it's kind of like a family. <laughs> and so, and for Jackie, we are actually the highest impact factor among all allergy journals. I think we are number six among all immunology journals, which I think is an accomplishment as well. And uh, so the way the impact factor is calculated is really to see how many of our papers are cited and how often. The other word, the idea is that the more citation a particular journal gets for all of its papers, that means people are actually taking notice, they're reading what we're publishing, and hopefully that's impacting their research, which in turn will impact the specialty. So generally, and, and as you know, it's human nature that you want to publish in the journal that will have the widest exposure for your research. So it kind of feeds on itself. The higher your impact factor, the more the authors are likely to submit to the journal, and uh, which makes also kind of uh, the more more papers where we cannot accept, unfortunately. So uh, maintaining the impact factor, in essence, is like maintaining our reputation among the scientific community. Now, the way the impact factor is calculated uh, is uh, calculated over a two-year period. So the impact factor that's released in 2019 is calculated for the papers that were published in 2016 and 2017, because you want to give a year at least for the papers to have uh, adequate exposure. And so over that two-year period, 
Clarivate, which is the uh, the which are the people who actually calculate the impact factor, calculate the number of the papers that we published. That's the denominator, and the number of citations we got. That would be the numerator. So the higher the numerator, obviously, the higher the impact factor, and the higher uh, the lower the denominator, also the higher impact factor. This is actually what Calivate tells us that their formula is. Sometimes people say that they have other considerations that we don't know about. But for, from our point of view, really, it, it is a measure of how, how valued Jackie is uh, to our uh, authors, to, our site, to the people who read us as well. But that doesn't really impact, it doesn't measure how are we impacting the members of the academy who are actually are the ones who read us, but not necessarily writing papers. So this is where the challenges for Jackie comes in, because we want to be targeting the scientific community that's going to submit to us and going to cite us, but we cannot forget why we're here, which is actually our members and our readers. So we really have to have material that will impact the practice of our members as well. So it's a daily daily consideration, actually, that to balance the, the two tracks, if you will. I hope that was clear enough. Oh, yes. No, absolutely. I think that was one of the best explanations um, that I've heard, and I think it's helpful for everybody listening to really understand what that means. Um, and I, I like you know to kind of segue from what you just mentioned, because you're right, you're trying to reach a, a very broad audience of uh, researchers and immunologists and practicing allergists. So along those lines, can you describe for us the different types of articles that are published in Jackie? Okay, so there are different formats, and obviously, there, as you mentioned, we have different content as well, because this is the nature of the specialty, because with allergy and clinical immunology, so we have papers that are, uh, I, I hate to use the word pure allergy, but are mostly allergic diseases. We have all papers that are clinical immunology, but we also have papers that are basic immunology. So uh, we have uh, multiple formats. First, we have... Uh, Editorials, obviously, and I'll expand on that later. Uh, we have uh, reviews. Each issue has a theme. Where and for each theme, we usually like to have a a, a clinical review, a review that kind of uh, summarizes the developments in that particular area up until now. We have, uh, and that actually appeals a lot more to our practitioners. And for that one, actually, we also offer CME. Uh, exam questions so that uh, readers can actually obtain CME for, re for reading that particular review. Then we have a, another review which focuses more on immunopathogenesis and mechanisms. And then we usually have a rostrum whereby, you know, something controversial, we over offer people the opportunity to, to pontificate, if you will. And we also have a current perspective that is a summary of a particular aspect of the theme for that issue. So these are all invited, obviously, and the editorials are invited as well. So then we have the original articles, which are full-length articles that are submitted by the authors and are sub subjected to peer review. We have letters to the editor, which are usually condensed format. They are limited in the number of words and also in the number of figures or tables that you can have and the number of references. Because these are supposed to kind of address 
kind of new developments that may not be ready for prime time or kind of a novel concept that the, you know the observation is important but it has has not been uh, fleshed out yet so in other words kind of give, give people in the field the the heads up that hey we've just watched this so maybe everybody can start working on this so we can actually bring this to fruition so these are the basics uh, basics and so when uh, when uh, when I took over as editor in chief, we started up some initiatives and uh, kind of expanded our formats. And the idea was being to really get the basic science, but also have a a, a format whereby we can actually also explain why is that basic science development important and now how it's going to impact the practitioner actually, if not immediately, then in the near future. And so we instituted several new formats, and I'm gonna to try to remember if I, we 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 figure I can remember them all because so we we instituted something called paradigms and perspectives, which is actually kind of uh, takes a, 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 a some area that is not very clear in the literature, or there's some area that there have been some kind of developments in the basic field, and try to explain it as to why that is important and how that may impact uh, the practice in the future. We also, uh, I, I, I believe that uh, most of readers, especially the younger uh, people, are becoming more and more visually oriented. So we, cannot, we now introduce, we give the option to the authors of having graphical abstracts for their original papers so that they can summarize the, uh, the particular paper, uh, the particular methods and results in in a visual format, so that you can get it at a glance, at a glimpse. Because you know everybody is busy, and sometimes if people glance the graphical abstract, they can decide if they want to read it or not, or they're going to decide if it's going to impact them or not. So hopefully, uh, that will work. And actually, it is. Uh, I, I'm very pleased that when I go to meetings now, I can. It is not unusual for somebody to be flashing some of our graphical abstracts. So it's kind of nice to see. We actually emphasize even our editorials. We kind of now I ask the authors to include some uh, display items in the editorials, like a graphic, a, a graph or a table, so that people can also get the idea at, at a glance. We also introduced an occasional series called Methods in Allergy Immunology, and that is to kind of to explain how certain things are are examined and. Uh, not not only for research, but really kind of you know, like how how do we do flow cytometry? How what does it mean when you measure an IgE and, and and stuff like that? Or how is the method done? And what are the caveats in interpreting that method? Because just because you have a method, a result, unless you know how the method is done, you're you're not going to be able to troubleshoot it. We also introduced a series called Fundamentals of Allergy Immunology which is supposed to follow the format of the allergy board over a few year period to cover all aspects. So like, so for example, we're covering, uh, we've, so far we've covered mast cells, neutrophils, eosinophils, and we're gonna be going on down, down the road on that. Also, we can be kind of be covering some of the immunology aspects as well. We also introduced uh, a, an occasional series on mentoring. So, so far we've had uh, Frank Austin, and the Metcalf, and we have an editorial, uh, a, a paper on mentoring by Becky Buck, Dr. Becky Buckley in the works as well. We also introduced, I think I managed, managed already, Paradigms and Perspectives. We introduced something called Beyond the Frontiers, 
because there's a lot of things happening in science which may not be directly related to us now, but may actually become important. Uh, for, for example, machine learning, like uh, wearable technology, biosensors, uh, we've already published some some on that. And again, the idea, as, as you can tell probably from the theme, is to cover all aspects of the specialty, not only allergy immunology, but what's happening in, in medicine at large, because all of that is gonna impact us in, in, the, in the future, we think. Another another thing we we introduce is the uh, workshop summaries, and that uh, people when they have uh, meetings uh, in international meetings that where some important new new research has been discovered, we're asking somebody in there to kind of uh, give a write us a summary so as people can actually know what's going on without having to travel to those meetings. Also, one of our missions is actually to foster the development of our young people. So we have introduced a regular feature for young faculty awardees that they got, that were awarded by the foundation, what the research is, so that uh, so people can actually hopefully help them along uh, come along because we definitely have to care for the future uh, of the of the specialty. I think I covered most of everything. I may have forgotten some of that this other stuff that we've done, but I will remember if as as we go along. Sure. That, well, that's amazing, and that's a, a wonderful overview and, and really robust offerings. I think that, um, you know, as you talked about it, re you're trying to reach a wide audience, so that's fantastic. Um, I'd like to follow up on the theme concept. Um, so as you mentioned, you solicit, you know, some invitations for people to um, to provide rostrums and editorials and things like that. How far in advance do you have to decide on a theme for an issue? At least a year in advance, and sometimes that may be a little bit too fast, uh, too too short of a time frame because you know we're gonna have to figure out. It's actually a little bit tricky because you uh, you have to figure out what's happening, what's important, what we haven't covered, which area has some new developments that we need to cover. But also, you want to get your authors enough time to kind of write it, and then we can review them because we review all re we review all reviews, uh, not only original articles and letters that we review. We also review reviews, make sure that. You know, we are not biased or anything like that. So we, at least a year in advance, we decide on on the theme. Occasionally, a, something new develops that we try to kind of rush if we could, and then, but usually we can try to cover that either by an editorial or a paradigm perspective. Like, you know, for example, we're trying to cover some of the new deaths from uh, from the e, uh, vaping because vitamin E was involved, and we have been publishing a few papers on the role of vitamin E in allergy. So trying to say, and particularly in respiratory disease. So this we're trying to do that really quick. So we're going to do probably an editorial on it. We have to be prepared ahead of time, but we also have to be able to kind of do a rapid response, if you will. Sure. Yeah, and I think that that perspective is very helpful, and, and you know, hopefully for our listeners next time they you know open up one of the journals um, and look at some of the articles that they, you know, have that appreciation for how much, you know, work behind the scenes, you know, goes into each article and, and each issue. So that's fantastic. Now, um, I love that you highlighted some of the recent changes, um, but what I'd like to talk about um, or ask your, your thoughts on, um, I'm impressed how Jackie really tries to reach readers beyond its pages. You mentioned the graphical abstracts, but you also utilize things such as videos and social media. Um, can you describe how you're employing some of these channels and, and the type of engagement that you're seeing? Yes. Uh, so we, we, as a, we, we talked already about the graphical abstracts. We actually, uh, we are on, definitely have a, a, a good presence on, on the social media. For, so for every issue, all our original articles and reviews, we have a Facebook summaries, and they will have a tweet. 
And so we release a tweet a day, usually, to kind of cover what we've done. I also pick some of our letters to the editor that we think are kind of have uh, people should know about. We also do a, a tweet and a, a tweet on, on on some of those. So for almost pretty much any article that we have for every month, we have a Facebook and uh, and a tweet or just a tweet. And so we release the tweets one tweet a day. So that's our our social media uh, presence. We actually kind of we've we've tried uh, several things. We tried to have a social media editor that didn't work out. We figured that kind of you know it, uh, we were doing a better job just doing it in house. Uh, we so we did video abstracts and uh, we haven't done much of those mainly because I have a lot of work to, to produce as a video abstract. It's a lot easier to do a graphical abstract, but still every now and then some of our authors want to do the video abstract, so we work with them on that. So that we, we've done that. We tried something called virtual microscope, but uh, whereby you can actually we can uh, we can have the author submit a particular histology slide so that you can actually can go and look at it as though you're looking at it under a microscope in a pathology lab. But we did not have many takers with that, so it can turn out to be a little bit too technologically challenging. So we kind of, we again, we do this now on, only on uh, upon request. But the graphical abstracts have been extremely, extremely uh, popular with our authors, and I think around 50% of our papers currently have a graphical abstract. Well, that's great. It really, I think, speaks to the outside-the-box thinking that is employed with the journal um, and your staff and yourself as well. And, you know, I'd like to um, go back to, you You know, you first assumed the role as co-editor-in-chief of Jackie in 2016, and as of 2018, you're now the editor-in-chief. And one of your first endeavors was to conduct a needs assessment uh, survey of Jackie readers and Academy members. Can you discuss some of the themes that emerged from this assessment and what you learned? Yeah, so we've done actually. Uh, we, Chesme uh, and I, Chesme, Dr. Chesme Actis and I started for January in 2016. But we actually started did a membership survey in 2015, and then we did another membership survey last fall in 2018. And it was interesting to see, uh, as you know, whenever you do a survey, you're looking at demographics, and it was kind of nice to see that you know our audience actually uh, is global. As worldwide, really, and that was extremely important for us to ex uh, try to make sure that we extend our global outreach. And I'll tell you later how we did some some of our endeavors. We certainly that's a work in progress still. And we ask our uh, members as to what would they like, what do they like and don't like from the current format. And it was obvious that they really liked the reviews, for sure. Everybody liked that. That was very high score. And they asked for a little bit more of what I told you about, um, kind of a little more explanation of what what does these developments mean. And that's actually how some of those initiatives came came from. Uh, but for the most part, they actually, we asked them also, before we adopted Graphical Abstract, we asked, the, this is the one in 2015, uh, would you be interested in a visual format? And that was a resounding yes. Mm. And we asked them if they like the theme of each journal, so we should, of each issue, should we keep that or should we kind of uh, morph it? They said, no, keep it, so we kept it. So what is really kind of nice is that when we followed up with the survey in 2018, 
And we got like, you know, almost every question we asked about the content and the format, we had like, you know, 70 to 80% of outstanding to very good. So we can, I think, I think we're reaching out our members. And actually one stat, one statistic that I'm very, very happy with is that we keep track of the number of downloads that and as you know the downloads are, are pretty much global and also it kind of means some uh, people who are not necessarily authors or readers of uh, our probably readers will go into the website and then download some of our papers and in the last uh, two years we went up i don't have the statistic exactly exactly in front of me but we went uh, up from less from like 800 to 900,000 downloads a year we are like now close to four to five million downloads a year. So I think uh, uh, our readers are happy with what, what we're uh, uh, publishing. So that's actually one statistic that I'm very, very proud of is that, you know, we're, our dual mission hopefully is working. That's great. And I, I like the, the tracking of downloads because, you know, as uh, we've all evolved in the way that we, you know, get our information. Um, and a lot of people, like you said, just go right to the website to get the articles. That's wonderful. Now, um, from what you've described so far, it's, it's clear to me that Jackie's really committed to um, evolving to meet the future needs of our specialty. And in your opinion, what are the biggest challenges facing our specialty of allergy and immunology, both now and over the next five to ten years? That's an excellent question, actually. And, and, and you know, there's no one single answer for that. So as you may know that around five, six years ago, the Academy had a task force on the future of allergy. I was part of that. And I think Dr. Bill Bussey was the lead person on that. We wrote an editorial in, in Jackie uh, at the time. The consensus was that uh, what we're looking for, a couple of things, is that the scope of the specialty is definitely going to expand. And part of the reason, I think, and actually I talked to some of ourselves who go and practice, and that is most of the easy Allergy immunology diseases are being handled by the primary care provider, mainly because we have such good uh, therapeutic armamentarium now, they don't have to come to the allergist initially. And so I think it's evolving such that first for the traditional allergic diseases, I think it is uh, the allergist is seeing some of the more and most complicated patients as compared to what was the case 20 years ago. But also from the scope of the specialty, I think we are we are we are expanding first. Part of it is because of the uh, really the expansion of uh, the therapeutic approaches. So, like for food allergy, you know, you know, of, of course, your oral immunotherapy is a major development which is going to have a, a, a lot of uh, its own issues. But more importantly, the development of biologics. So, with biologics, and uh, and and I feel strongly about that because Jackie is taking a claim on biologics, all biologics, and and. It's, and and so the reason I, I'm, I'm interested in biologics, one is, as you know, biologics have become extremely important in, 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 in allergy immunology, starting with the dawn of amelizumab. Obviously, we can kind of pinpoint when that started in allergy with the first publication of amelizumab, which was around 2000, 2001, I think. And since then, obviously, we've had tons of biologics that have come down the pike. But a lot of other specialties also have biologics. Now, the thing with biologics is that uh, they uh, don't always behave like they are supposed to because depending on the individual bi biological study state, you get a lot of unanticipated consequences. And I go around actually talking about some of the unanticipated consequences that we've dealt with in our, my institution. So I, I think 
knowing how to use the biologics for allergic immunological diseases is important, but also knowing how to kind of handle some of the reactions, the unanticipated complications of the biologic. And I'm not talking just allergic reactions, okay? I'm, I'm talking some unanticipated immunological reactions. I give you an example, which is not necessarily applied directly to us, but at least to give you an example why we uh, don't always understand is that when the TNF antagonists first came out for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, they're great. They work in rheumatoid arthritis, terrific. But you know, nobody anticipated that they can activate TB. And actually, that was, I mean, the immunologists learned from that side effect because it was known from mouse models that you needed interferon and TNF-alpha to kind of form a granuloma, but nobody was thinking as, what do you need to maintain a granuloma? It turned out that maintaining a granuloma is actually an active process. And so we get a lot of consults of patients who are in biologic, say for oncology, for some of the other diseases, ophthalmology, that they end up coming in with unusual immune manifestations that we really, I think that's gonna, we're going to have to deal with, with that. One. Two is a lot of the medical dermatological diseases, I think, are going to become more and part of our, the scope of our specialty because uh, uh, mainly because a lot of them uh, are two things. One, the immune basis is being understood more, and so they need, need more someone immunologist to understand what's going on. And also, biologics for, for dermatology are probably the largest growing area of biological research right now. I think there are at least 70 biological clinical trials going on for dermatological diseases. And uh, we're actually planning a theme issue on the immunology of skin diseases hopefully in a year or so. So it's kind of, uh, so it gives you an idea. The other thing is that what when we're looking at, uh, stop me if I'm talking too much. I'm passionate no. about this. Yeah, I, <laughs> okay. your, your passion is, is evident and I love it. It's great. <laughs> so certain things, as you know, in allergy in general, we've had a lot of contested areas. We have some kind of rocky relationship with some of the ENT people, some of the dermatological people. But I think there are certain areas that certainly are going to be our our domain. We have to really take possession of those. We got the ones that we don't have any contest on are fruit allergy for sure, drug allergy for sure, immunodeficiency for sure. And I would like to add on that immunological complication or biological diseases. I think at the very least, that is where I think the scope of the specialty is going. Now, obviously, the 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 flip side of that, of course, you got all the kind of the health. Care issues and the Medicare, Medicaid uh, uh, reimbursement, and so on. We haven't addressed that, in Jackie, yet, but we're kind of trying to kind of uh, try see if we, how we can try to to do that. But we're addressing more of the of clinical and basic uh, aspects that we think for the scope of the specialty. You know, I, I, think I think that was a long-winded answer to you. I'm sorry if I if I went too long. <laughs> No, no, it's great. Um, and I agree with you. It, you know, we have these shiny new toys with our biologic uh, treatment options, but the unintended consequences and long-term monitoring and use and implementation really needs to be uh, better understood as we, as we move forward. So that's fantastic. Um, now, you know, I, I'd like to, you know, a little personal if that's okay. And you seem like a passionate sort of person. So, uh, you know, as editor-in-chief of Jackie, um, it must keep you very busy. Uh, I think our listeners would really like to understand more about what your position entails, and I'd be interested to learn what you enjoy most about your role. Okay, well, the most enjoyable part is the submissions, the original submissions, because you know what you you actually get to have your pulse on what's going on long before anybody else does, 
and it's kind of gives you, actually changes your perspective on on uh, what how you teach and actually how you see what, how you deal with the patients a little bit because you know what's going what people are thinking what they're finding what they're not finding that is the most fun part of the job now also that's the most time consuming part of the job <laughs> so, <laughs> because i mean you know i i actually i actually uh, read every submissions i mean every morning i go through submissions and wow. uh, this, and then we, and, and as you know, I, we can't send every submission for review. I have to decide what which ones are more likely to be accepted. So I don't want to waste the time of our reviewers either. And so I, I select some of them. Uh, and we obviously consult with the deputy editors and the associate editors. Obviously, we cannot, I cannot survive without their help. And so then we decide uh, if we're going to send that out for review. And I assign that to a, either one of the deputy editors or the, one of the associate editors, and then they send it out for review. And then when the reviews come back, the associate editors give a recommendation. And I review all the recommendations, actually, before finalizing the decision. Because sometimes, as I said, because I, I kind of know everything that that is in the works, because sometimes we get a paper that will be complementary to a paper we're going, we're, we have accepted already, but it's not really published yet. And so, you know, we kind of try to kind of make sure that if if it disagrees, it will be great. If it agrees, it will also be great, depending on the situation. And so we kind of try to kind of tweak that so that to kind of be fair uh, to the topic, but also more fair to our authors as well. Uh, then of course we have we have uh, regular uh, phone calls to decide what we're gonna do as far as content concerned. As I mentioned, we can talk about the themes a year in advance, whom we're gonna invite, and uh, what kind of topics we're gonna cover. And then I'm actually involved in every step of the production of the of the paper, even including the cover design, and uh, uh, what, whom we're gonna ask for editorials. And also then I, I actually respond to all our authors who actually want to submit. They have a pre-submission inquiry. And I also respond to the authors who are really angry and mad at me because I did not accept the paper. <laughs> so that actually is the toughest because that is really the toughest part of the job because, you know, you have to, I have to turn down some really good papers, but it's just that we can publish everything. Uh, you know, it's kind of, you, you have to be selective. I think I gave you a kind of a synopsis of what goes. So, I mean, suffice it to say, is, I mean, it takes me pretty much, uh, um, oh, most of the mornings, pretty much four or five hours every morning at least. And But as I said, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's a labor of love, really. Yeah. Well, you know, as uh, I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of many of my colleagues who are listening. Um, you know, I struggle uh, with staying current with the manuscripts that are published in the journal, and you mentioned that you're reading every single submission. Do you have any tips on time management skills for the rest of us? <laughs> how, do you, how, do you, how do you sort of budget that amount of time throughout your day? Well, actually, it's kind of, I find that uh, the one tip I tell, I'll tell people is that you can control the beginning of the day, so try to get as much done as possible at the beginning of the day, because as you know, as the day goes on, you have you lose control. You have no idea what's going to happen. So I kind of start out pretty much early, uh, long before anybody has come in here. So I kind of uh, get things going. I think that's great advice. Do you mind um, cluing us in on what early is for you, or, or what time do you normally show up? Uh, probably in the office by 6 a.m. Okay. So it's an early start? Early bird gets the it's worm? It's an early start. They gather a couple of hours before the phone starts ringing. 
Okay. Well, that's great advice that you know. Hopefully, all of us can uh, employ as well. So there you have it, everybody. Wake up early and you know, <laughs> read read those first uh, first articles before your day gets going. Um, well, let's um, let's shift the conversation a little bit towards the overall process of peer review and manuscript submissions. You sort of touched upon this a little bit, um, but for our listeners, what resources are available for authors who are interested in submitting their work for publication in Jackie? Where can you direct them? Well, go to our website. We actually have detailed instructions for authors. We have there's a button. We just actually been working hard on revamping our website, and I ask people to go back and look at the website because we just finished. Uh, making major changes in the website a couple of weeks ago. We're not done yet. And so that it makes it, there is, it's, it's real easy to see where you want to submit a manuscript. And then there's author information. And we actually explain the various formats that are available. And, uh, if, if you read all those instructions, there's, I, we keep tweaking them to make sure that they are as clear as, as, as possible. And so that is a very, very, uh, I would recommend that the first thing you do when you want to submit something, go and read that. So author guide, and then also some Elsevier author information pages that you can click on. And if you have anything that's not clear yet, just, you know, contact the editorial office and they will, they'll be glad to answer your question. Um, uh, I ask people that if they have something they're not quite sure about, they can submit their pre-submission inquiry, and we usually respond within a couple of days as to whether that you know we're interested in, not interested in. But the big thing really is read the author instructions because they're as detailed as possible. And if something's not clear, then just just ask. We just just sent. To, we have a link to say ask for Jackie. You can you can, you can go in there. The and I kind of uh, important thing to make sure that you figure out the format, the limitation of the format. For for example, for letters to editors, it's a thousand word limit. For original articles, we don't have word limits, so that's important to know. For letter to editor, we have limits on references. We don't have limits on references for original articles. But that's all spelled out. We have even instructions on how to do a graphical abstract with examples. A big thing to kind of really important is make sure you feel the conflict of interest because obviously we that we, we actually look at that. Uh, we, we scrutinize that. Uh, we actually scrutinize that to make sure that we have no conflict of interest, and we have to have a conflict of interest declaration from all the authors. Sometimes that holds things up a little bit. Mm. Um, so aside from the conflict of interest information and the word count based upon the, the type of submission, are there other common mistakes that can be avoided up front uh, to help assist the peer review process? Most most common mistakes really are they don't people don't follow the format that mm. we're recommending. Those are pretty much the most common ones. And it is important that you are clear. Uh, we we actually we do not insist on any format for the abstract because we kind of free flowing abstract we accept. But if if you make the abstract as understandable as possible, because as you know, most people, uh, especially when reviewers, when we invite reviewers, they're gonna read the abstract to decide whether they can accept to review that or not. So it's very important to really to make your abstract as true to the data as possible. Because sometimes people kind of, you know, mention what the what the what the method is, and then the conclusion is like pretty much like doesn't is incongruous with what they were looking for. So this is a common mistake, and these and that's that's important for when I read it, but also when we send it to reviewers, because reviewers when they look at the abstract, they're gonna decide whether they're interested in doing that or not. So you know, you got two layers that you're gonna have to actually uh, pass muster. That pretty much is the most common uh, error we have not 
following the format, not following the word limit, and not being clear. And also, really, I mean, if you have difficulty with English, we get a lot of problem with English. Sometimes it's kind of get somebody to help with the English. And I assume that's not so much for people from North America, but as I mentioned, we do have global submissions. And we get uh, submissions from people whose English is not the first language. And sometimes we have a little bit of problem with that. No, it's it's impossible for any journal to publish every single submission. This you know due to space constraints and the appropriate nature for the the journal and scope of mission and things like that. Are you able to give us a sense of how many original article submissions you received in 2018 uh, per se, and and how many were ultimately published, or at least a percentage of overall submissions that get published? So I think we in 2018 uh, we received around 1,700 submissions. We averaged between 1,500 and 1,700 submissions. I think in 2017 we also received closer, a little bit less than 1,800 submissions. Uh, for 2018, uh, some of them are still in revision, so I don't have the exact number for that. But for 2017. We pretty much accepted around thirty percent of all submissions. Okay, um, and from you know some quick math in my head here, that means that you personally are reading about four to five of these a day. Um, <laughs> does that sound about right? R yeah, r roughly at least. And and you know we actually some days are more because we. Uh, so this is over a year, but there are some dead zones. Usually, come we have not as many submissions in August. Everybody's on vacation. And in the second half of December for winter holidays, but then, yeah, that's about right. Four to five on average a day. It's about right. Okay. Um, now, as we as we wrap up here, uh, I'd like to talk about the peer review process. And you have dozens of, of allergists and other medical professionals who volunteer their time to review articles submitted for publication. Um, I'd love to hear your um, your thoughts on the benefits for reviewers, and also how can our listeners who may be interested in reviewing submissions get more involved. Okay, first of all, I mean, I mean, when I want to do make sure on the podcast that I want all our reviewers to know how much appreciative I am of their efforts. We cannot survive without our reviewers. They are our bread and butter. They they are our saviors, actually. I mean, they are what they are what makes Jackie great. Because if we don't get the authors a good review, they're not gonna come back to us. So I mean, for everybody who's done a review for us, I am indebted to you, and I thank you so very much. So anyway, so and I want to make our reviewers happy. So we actually did a reviewer survey last fall as well to make sure that we're, what we're doing good and what we're doing bad. And I'm happy that most of our reviewers were actually happy with the process. But they did have some good suggestions, and we adopted some of the suggestions. One one major suggestion, for example, is that when they accept to review now, we're linking it automatically to their Outlook calendar so that they, they cannot remind them that, you know, a review is due. So, you know, I know everybody is busy and they're volunteering their time for us. So, I mean, so we're trying to make that easier. We also introduced a flag system so that if they go on the, on the website, the editorial manager where they upload their uh, views, uh, green, you're good, or uh, yellow, uh, we have orange and red, so that kind of helps them out visually. And we actually, Spent a lot of time uh, as per suge their suggestions to kind of simplify the reviewer template, so it makes it a lot more intuitive that they don't have to enter as many, uh, they don't have to many do as many click buttons, so makes it more or ready buttons to make the process easier for them. So, uh, the, uh, I mean, why do our reviewers accept the review? For first of all, because they're very kind-hearted and they like the specialty and they like the journal. 
but also it's uh, I mean, it's, as you know, if it's in your area, you really would like to know what's going on too. And uh, two, we offer them CME for the review. So I, when they do review for us, it actually counts for CME for towards their uh, board recertification and license renewal as well. And we actually uh, try to always, always trying to recruit some more reviewers. The more reviewers we have, the better, because we can actually be a little bit more efficient because we don't want to tax our reviewers, uh, use the same reviewers over and over again. So if anybody listening, uh, if you think you can review, contact us and we'll kind of talk about how we can do this process. And we actually kind of developed a kind of like a, we have the editorial board, uh, obviously, and these are people who are accomplished and then and they feel that they actually, so that they, uh, uh, we go to them a lot. But we also have something called a reviewer board, which is people who haven't really reviewed that much, but they want to really know how to get into the process. So we can usually kind of, uh, have people join the reviewer board and as they review more for, more for us and they're doing a good job, then they can become part members of the editorial board. And we're trying to work on a junior reviewer board, people who are just out of uh, fellowship who want to, who, who want to kind of learn how to review. We also all starting to adopt that. And along with our sister journal in practice, we have developed the fellow reviewer program, whereby when we ask a program director to review a manuscript, they can involve one of the fellows with them and they, they can actually uh, uh, let us know that the fellow was reviewed that so that that fellow, as when he or she graduates, becomes part of our junior reviewer boards or our, uh, or our reviewer board. We also have an international reviewer board as well as international advisory board again, to help us with some of the issues that may be unique to people outside uh, North America. Just going to ask, um, you mentioned to contact the journal. Is there uh, an easy way to do that either through the website or do you have an email address that people could use? They go through, can go through the website. Everything goes through the website because that's actually being checked continually. Excellent. Okay. And uh, I can tell you as a reviewer, it is it is much appreciated, um, both uh, that you specifically name reviewers and thank them in, on the pages within Jackie um, annually, and then also at the annual meeting, there's always a nice reception as well. So on, on behalf of uh, fellow reviewers, thank you for that. It's always it's nice to well, be Thank you. As you know, we're very, very appreciative of that. Yeah. Now, um, the last question I have for you uh, is, you know, I, I love that there's a goal of 14 days for reviewer feedback for every submission once the review goes out and it's accepted. Uh, why do you like to see such a fast return time and what type of feedback do you receive? Well, I'm happy that? to hear you say that that's fast because that's not what my authors tell me. So, as you know, I mean, again, it's a tightrope. From, from one point of view, you don't want to tax your reviewer. Obviously, you want to give your reviewer as much time so they can do a really thorough thorough reading and thorough job, I, I know. But then on the other hand, and again, I'm out soliciting, asking people that, you know, you have to think of us before you think of New England Journal. I know that's not going to happen, but I keep saying that. <laughs> and so the one thing that works is that usually if somebody, the idea of somebody has something really they think is extremely hot, that they need fast review, then we really like to have a fast turnaround. doesn't always work. Sometimes some of the authors contact me and now they want an expedited review, which means like 14 days is a little bit too fast, uh, too slow. I mean, I mean, so it's kind of, so it's it's one of those things where you kind of on one one way, no, on one hand you don't want to tax over tax your reviewers, but also on the other hand you want to keep the authors happy because as you know, 
And as an author myself, I mean, I want to know for sure sooner rather than later because, you know, every submission uh, I submit, I think, should get the Nobel Prize. And I think that everybody else thinks that way. So it's kind of, you know, being an editor and also have, have, having been and is an author myself, I kind of understand, and being a reviewer as well. So we figure 14 days is like a nice kind of compromise. doesn't always work. I mean, we try to re- remind some of our reviewers now, part of the problem we get why it doesn't always work because for Jackie, we try to get a minimum of three reviewers per per original article, sometimes four reviewers if, if we could. And, and as you know, you don't get them all back at the same time. And sometimes we have to kind of remind some of the reviewers. I'm sure you got some of our reminders uh, so when you review it for us. And so, and again, with being kind of uh, uh, appreciative of the reviewer's time, it's just also trying to be fair to the authors. And then uh, the the last question I have for you uh, before I'm happy to take any other comments you have is, do you have a way of knowing exactly when reviewers are going to go on vacation? Because it seems like that's exactly when I get <laughs> most of and my that's vacation. Actually, that was exactly, that's one of the feedback we got from our reviewers. I know, and we uh, hopefully we have actually fixed the website, the sort of manager where the viewers are, that we that should not be an issue anymore. That's what the total manager people tell me. But uh, also, if you find if you have any problems, that let us know because we keep we still tweaking that to kind of get it as uh, indicative of real time as possible. And I am I'm aware of that actually, and, and that's part of the feedback we got from the reviewer survey last fall. And I think hopefully we we kind of worked on that. Oh, excellent. Well, that's good to hear. Um, well, Dr. Ballas, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I, I truly enjoyed speaking with you and, and learning more about the journal. Um, before we depart, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Well, I just first thank you for the opportunity. And I just, again, when I, when I mention that, you know, uh, this is not a one-person job. I mean, this is actually, it takes, takes a, a village to do that. I mean, you know, I've got the deputy editors, the associate editors, the editorial board, and certainly the reviewers. I really want to thank all of them because without them we can't have we won't have a product. So I really appreciate that. And I also have to thank our authors because I mean again I I really think it is important for the authors to think that we care about their their submissions. It's, and if we if we reject something, it's not because we 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 don't like you or anything like that. It's just because we have to have the, we have to have a certain cutoff level. And I. Solicit the authors if they have any issues or suggestions how we can improve, and, and uh, we will always be happy to listen. Great. Well, thank you again. Thank you, David. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.